Thank you. And um, before we get going in today's message, uh, I've asked uh, Pastor Jack to share a little bit about uh, the crux of what we're going to be talking about tonight. For those of you who cannot make it, those of you not able to uh, to be there tonight, I want you to hear kind of the heart of who we are. Uh, Jack is one of our pastors on our team of pastors, and he brings a lot to the table. I said in the first service, kind of jokingly call, but I do really kind of mean it because I'm a history nut. You're the Thomas Jefferson of our church. He's the, he is the pen to the paper of who we are. The, the, the foundational integrity that we have, which is based on the Word of God, really, this is a man that was used by that. So um, when we talk about gospel centrality, what it means to be a gospel-focused church, just want Jack to share a little bit about tonight so it gets your mindset into today's 430 meeting. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Jake. We're going to do some important work tonight, and we're hoping that you'll all be able to enjoy, uh, join us tonight as we gather for what we call our annual Creekside Church Family Meeting. And that's basically what we're doing. We're getting together, annual basis. We're dealing with the, the ins and outs of the ministry and just dealing with the work that needs to be done and cared for in the most responsible way. And so this is what we do, and it's a very important part of who we are as an independent church. And Creekside Church is not beholden to a denomination or to any other hierarchy. We're an independent church. We're led by pastors, and we're basically ruled by the congregation. So the authority really rests in you as a body of believers. So that's why membership is so important, and that's why the process is so integral to uh, what we have as a church and uh, why we ask you to go through that process. So this is really, I like to say it this way, this is how a gospel-centered church does gospel work. You know, we get together, we discuss these matters of business, and basically what we are doing is we are asking you as a congregation to affirm, to approve, to vote on the budget that we're putting before you for the 2019 year fiscal year and to select leaders as well as to uh, welcome new members, what we did today, and you know to care for any, any other matters of significant uh, importance that we need to bring before you. Now, when I think about 2018 in review, you know, if I'm sitting here in my car and I'm looking through the rear view mirror and I think about 2018 in review, I am just really amazed at what God has done in this body of believers over the last 12 months. You know, just take 2018 as a block of time to reflect on. And God, the Lord God has done some wonderful things to care for us, to provide for us, and these are the kinds of things that we want to celebrate. So we come to our annual family meeting tonight with that spirit, with that sort of mindset, with a deep sense of gratefulness, with an awareness of the Lord's uh, sovereignty and superintendence over all that we are and all that we do as a church. And although 2018 was not without its challenge or challenges for you individually or for us corporately, we were never alone. We were never alone in that process. The Lord walked with us through every valley. The Lord walked with you through every valley. And I'm thinking of those valleys of accidents or sickness or deaths or just a number of things that we encountered over the past year, as well as with us through every every mountain peak. You know, and I think about the births. I think about the, the growing church family. I think about the stability of our finances. I just think about all the wonderful things the Lord did to provide for us, to care for us, to show himself very strong and precious to us in the midst of it all. So the Lord is indeed worthy of our praise. 
And when I think about, again, the tone of our meeting tonight, the time that we'll be together, I, I think about Psalm 111, and I've asked that uh, we use Psalm 111 as our sort of our theme psalm for tonight. And it reads this way. It's only 10 verses. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever, holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Amen? So, when I think about uh, the works of the Lord that are affirmed in this psalm or cited in this psalm, I think about his character as well that is affirmed and highlighted. He is gracious. He is righteous. He is trustworthy. He is praiseworthy. And so we come tonight as the people of God with that mindset that this is our God This is what he's done for us. This is what he's brought into existence. And so when we gather, we celebrate all of that as deeply and as sincerely as we can. So by way of application, I think the psalm encourages us and encourages our camaraderie around the gospel. And you say, well, how does it do that? Well, we rally around the good news of who God is and what God does and the fruit that he brings into our lives through his word and through his work. So, we looked in the rearview mirror just for a few minutes here. We could say much, much more, and I'd love to just turn it into a prayer and praise time now, but we'll resist that because Jake has a burning in his bosom to preach from <laughs> 1 Samuel chapter 2. So, why are you so red and embarrassed? <laughs> so, now, let's look through the windshield. All right, let's look through the windshield and see what's before us in 2019. And I'd say, you know, in 2019, we must, we really must be good stewards of what's before us. Stay focused, if we can, on the gospel. Live it out loud. Really live it out loud. Live large in that regard. And how will we do that? By a strong ministry of the Word of God. Thorough preaching ministry as well as, you know, a, you know all of the Bible studies and everything that goes on at, at the grassroots level. And then being a healthy church and community with one another, both in-reach and outreach. So you see that, you know, number one, it's the Word. Number two, it's the fruit of the Word, which is community, in-reach, outreach. And then number three, I would say, is construction. You know, so, you know, we have this crazy thought that we're going to build a church this coming year. You know, it's pretty scary, isn't it? Pat's not laughing. But, um, but anyway, God has really blessed us with some property, with um, resources, with uh, 
the passion within our leadership to to give leadership to and to bring this together. And so we want to work very diligently. We want to have sort of a wartime mentality, if I could say it that way, with regard to our finances and with regard to the nature of ministry. Uh, but we don't want to surrender ministry in the midst of a construction project. So we want to keep advancing as well as uh, being good managers of what God has put into our hands. And so, as I close, I came across a statement that I found uh, I had penned on June 11, 2017, when we came together as Creekside Church, or what would become Creekside Church, and I said something like this. I said, welcome to the place where the gospel soaks everything we are and everything we do. The good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is so big and so powerful. It delivers us from slavery to freedom. It produces the fruit of love, kindness, forgiveness, to name just a few. But it gives us hope. And I hope that you will always see and understand that Creekside Church is a place of gospel hope. Gospel hope. Rooted in the character of God, the work of God. So may God help us to be the gospel-centered church he's called us to be, and to, for us to be on mission with him, advancing that cause. So thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you tonight. So, Jake, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> hard not to stare at my big bosom of wanting to deliver this message. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I am excited about this. Thank you again for always... Putting, putting a focus on where it needs to go. Really appreciate um, your heart for tonight, what's going to happen. Looking forward to, uh, again, I, hey, I, again, I want to apologize because we did not anticipate it being this wet. And so, I mean, I owe you a car wash when you drive down my dirt road. All, I'm sorry. But we'll, have, we'll make do with it. Let's face it, for 2,000 years, we didn't concern themselves with rain and mud. And if they did it, we can do it, right? So there we are. Um, we are continuing in a uh, series on the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. We started this three weeks ago. If you did not catch the opening of First Samuel by Shale two weeks ago, would you go back and listen to that? Because it's probably the best opening of a series that I've heard. I mean, I just learned so much myself. So if you could um, just pull that up off, the, um, off our website. That is the one thing that does work. As well as our online giving. We're no dummies, right? We're, we're slackers, but there it is. Um, we preach through word by word by word by word. So, uh, as we preach through this, there are scriptures you get to that are, they seem light. You preach it. Some seem difficult. You preach through it. Uh, some seem like, how are we going to get conclusion? You preach through it. That's what we do. So, as we're preaching through this, I hope you learn something from this. I hope you walk away saying, I glean something from this particular chapter. Let me pray for me real quickly, okay? Father, <clears throat> please, Lord, just speak through me, and uh, don't let me be a distraction in any way that, Lord, you would have said what you would have said here. It's in Jesus' name, amen. First Samuel chapter 2, as we jump into verse 12. Turn your Bible on or turn to <clears throat> Pardon me. There's a few areas here. I didn't highlight any particular verses, but I'm going to stop and bank on a few of them. We are walking into a, a theme today. It's a theme about disobedience. It's a theme about also your importance. And you're going to, you're going to see some verses that if you're a new believer or not a believer, you're going to look at this and think, what? 
How can God speak that way? How could he do these particular things? But he has a very good reason for why he's about to do these things. You see, there has been a period of time for a few hundred years where the judges have, God has used judges on this earth. They have become corrupt. It's become politically corrupt, socially corrupt, morally corrupt, and now enters the phase of the priests. These priests were doing good works. They were intermediaries between man and God. You would, you would go to these priests and you would offer a sacrifice. You would go to them and say, I'm here to make a sacrifice so I can have my sins forgiven. Jesus had not yet been offered as a sacrifice. So it was no, nothing unusual for any time you went to a temple, synagogue, or a, a, even a tent where there was a celebration of the presence of God, that there would be a sacrifice made by the priest. Let's look at this verse. Let's look at a couple of verses here, and then we'll kind of go into that a little bit more. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Well, you talk about an unfiltered, immediate cannon shot of a start. Here it is. There is no gentrification of these words, or there's this nothing subtly being offered. It starts out this new area in this chapter and immediately says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. If you looked up a better translation of the word worthless, it would say this, scoundrels. These are scoundrels. They did not know the Lord. Verse 13, the custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan, or kettle, or cauldron, or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is why they did it, Shiloh, to all the Israelites who came there. So, here in this particular case, you see there's a three-fronged pork given over by a servant that would walk up, stab the meat, bring it up, and whatever stayed on the fork was given to the priest. The priest was not paid. The priest had no way of making money. The priest was probably an ineffective hunter. So this meat was given over. If you look in um, Deuteronomy, I think it's Leviticus 7 and also Deuteronomy 15, there's a, it gives a description as to what the priest would get, what they would get. They would get a breast of, the, of a fowl, and they would also get the right thigh. It was really interesting. But in this particular case, stick a prong, pull it out, and the priest would get it, whatever he wanted. Verse 15, something else happens. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Now stop right here. Before Verse 15, when it says here, moreover, before the fat was burned, meant this. The fat wasn't worthy enough for us. So you would burn the fat as an incense offering to God. Y'all ever drive by barbecue places and you just... Man, you're just like, wow, the smell. This would be the smell during the times of sacrifice. The fat would be burning and wafting through the air as a fragrance. This is an agrarian society. These are poor people. These are farmers. These are people giving all they have. If your mind's sitting there thinking, why would they burn fat? The fat was the best part of the animal. What do we do? We carve fat away, don't we? You know, I was at the oddest thing is I've never seen this happen in the way I did last night. I mean, I did with guys, you know, but I mean, like I'm at a dinner, small um, wedding party, and there is the bride, 
it's kind of like Mary, kind of like you and Nicole. This lady's a jazzercise. I mean, this this lady is in shape. And she carves the fat off her steak. Nothing unusual. And then the end of the steak, she picks that thing up. Oh, here it is. And she starts eating it. I'm like, what are you doing? You you do this thing? Like, we don't eat. And she says, honey, I work out so I can do this thing. I'm like, really? Yeah. She said, this is it. And I'm thinking, it's just so odd that I'm reading about the burning of the fat in the Bible. And the, the fat was given over as an incense. So when people walked up, they knew the richest part of the meat was being given over to the glory of God. But halfway through verse 15, the priest's servant in this particular case, the servant to, the, to, to Eli's sons, he walks up and he says, you give meat for the priest to roast. He's not going to accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. This is highly against not only tradition, but religious law of the day, you wouldn't just give over raw meat. This would be, no, they're saying, no, give it over here. We want it raw. And then verse 16, and if the man said to him, wait, 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 let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Do you see the servant in that picture saying, no, 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 I'm going to take it by force. I'm going to take it from you. We walk into a church and you're generally, somebody gives you a bulletin, they shake your hand, they hug you when you walk in. I don't think temples and synagogues were necessarily um, bastions of hospitality. They were temple guards who protected the temple and also made sure you paid your temple tax. And if you didn't, guess who would be knocking on your door? The temple guards. Remember, this is the same crew that knocked on the door of Jesus and the disciples, and where's the temple tax? I mean, this is like a tenant, by the way, going to Jesus who owns a house and saying, you haven't paid your rent. (laughs) Jesus says, oh, just pay the rent anyway. Pay the tax. This is a servant saying, I'm going to take this meat from you by force. These are families going up going, you just can't take this. But they did. So, you see, these priests, when they're called wicked, evil, vile scoundrels, they're done so because of two reasons. These men have taken advantage of the people that they have come to serve. And now they have disrespected God and what he's demanded. There are times when we look at what we give to God, and if you're not careful, we protect it. We look at it and think, well, I just wrote a big check. I can guarantee you there were farmers who walked in and said, that was a big lamb. And yet we look back at their offering and it seems kind of silly, doesn't it? And yet if we look within our heart, we would see sometimes we're a little silly. All of us are. Those of you who have ever studied literature, taught literature, you're about to get into, you're about to break the prose of a writing style here. And you're like, where is this out of the blue? All of a sudden it goes from talking about these scoundrels to talking about Samuel. Look with me in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up to her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. So they would return to their home. 
Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew into the presence of the Lord. So why on earth would verses 18 through 21 be there to go from talking about these two vile priests under their father, Eli, who's a priest who knew better, why would you start talking about Samuel? Because they're showing a picture here of while one is decaying and fallen right before our eyes, there is another one being brought up. There's another one being coming together to say, here is a new, here's a new priest. As even as a boy wearing an ephod, something a priest would wear. Beginning to show this Samuel, this is what you'll be. So while all this is going on, Samuel's being brought up. Samuel's being brought up to this new place. And so there's this correlation, there's this parallel going back and forth. Now, who's going to confront these priests? Political leaders can't. These are high-ranking priests. Who's going to go to them? Maybe their dad's going to go with them. Eli, a respected man. A man who would know better than this, in verse 22, is about to confront. Now, Eli was very old. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the meeting tent. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I've heard of your evil doings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good to report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So Eli goes to them in what looks like a good confrontation. And by the way, it's important to remember this scripture is not a lesson on parenting. This isn't about a codependent dad who's aged who goes to his sons to try to rebuke him. This is about everyone who knew better who broke in the order of obedience and sacrifice and started giving over to their own whims. And so, how old is he? Uh, Chapter 4, verse 15, at this point, is saying he's in his 90s. He's nearly lost his sight. Surely we can say there's excuses being made. Nonetheless, Eli is about to confront his sons, and he does, and he says, what are you doing? Not only are they stealing the sacrifice, but they're also laying with the women at the entrance of the gate. Who are these women? There's probably a couple of schools of thought. There were women who came to sacrifice and got as close as they could to the entrance and just maybe there was a sense of unworthiness. They couldn't get in. He took advantage of, the, of, of their condition. These are women who may have been in charge of taking care of children outside of the wall, outside of the temple. Nonetheless, he took advantage of these women or they took advantage of these women. Eli has heard this. How effective is it? Look at verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice for their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So he confronts them, completely ineffective. Doesn't go anywhere. Did you catch this? This is a, this is a really, this one just kind of hit me more. I, I wish I'd have studied a little bit more. If someone sins against a man... God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This isn't just, by the way, I've broken the trust of the people. I have, Lord, I have broken your trust. And these are the priests the people go to for their forgiveness of sins, to represent them to God as a, as a forgiveness. This is the priest that the people are going to that is the mediator. You see, we are on the right side, the other side of the cross. In just a little bit, you're going to see who our priest is. But in this case, 
these evil, vile, wicked men don't get it. And then we break that literary flow. If an editor were to look at this and think, why now? Let's just break. The, no, let's not put this. Look at the look at the flow being broken. Going back to Samuel, verse twenty-six. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, <clears throat> let me stop right here for a second. Um, this man of God is, we do not know who he is. But I can guarantee you, this was not just an obedient man, this was a brave guy. This guy is going to go to Eli, a well-respected man, and confront him. Folks, I want you to picture this. I want you to picture going up to the person that you view as a spiritual mentor and saying, this is something that, is, that shouldn't be said. This is something that shouldn't be done. It's courage. It is. But this isn't just, by the way, oh, you did this, or maybe it was an observation about how you said this in conversation. This is basically saying you have lost your morals and you have lost your way. This man of God, this unknown man of God does this. It says here, um, they've lost where I'm at. Okay, verse 27, I'll repeat it. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to them, thus says the Lord, and so what he's doing is he's, he's quoting the Lord here. Ready? Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Let's stop, look back, and think... God is reminding Eli of this. Was I not there when your fathers needed me, when they were slaves in Egypt? Did I not raise up a royal priesthood that you would continue this great name? Did I not, did I not only start something, but did I, did, not, did I not promise to extend that and make you a part of that? And then this next verse is huge to understanding the following verses. It's big because it's comforting. Look at me in verse 29. God says, why then do you, by the way, you is plural here, not singular. Why then do you scorn, I wish I'd underlined this, ready, my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above who? Me, by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my Israel. Folks, if you ever hear us in our, in our kindest way of saying, welcome to Creekside, you're in the Father's house. You are not at Creekside, you are at the Lord's house. There is nothing I can do to state that case more than this particular verse. The day we start thinking, this is our church, that's their church, this is whose church. Folks, you're dealing with a God that holds that incredibly, incredibly close to his chest. This is why we've got a few rules here. One of them would be you don't gossip. You don't gossip about one another here. Why? Because they're his people. You talk about someone, I'm going to bring you in the presence of that someone right then. You don't talk about another church. 
Why? Because it's his church. They might be jacked up. They might be hurting. They might be whatever, but they're his church. We come alongside. When God says, these are my sacrifices. These are my offerings. Those are my livestock. And you're taking them from me. This is why sometimes when we write a check or something on online giving, we think, well, that was big. The reality is it was his. And we also know this. In our church, unless the text talks about money, we don't talk about money. Because we also know this. If this is his church, and there's his people, he has his plan. And I'm much more safe being in the wind of his plan than I am in a plan that is made up of us. If that means he halts us, stops us, or pushes us, that's what we do. And you honor yourselves above me. And then I get to this part. By offering yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people, Israel. Folks, who's he talking about? My, you. You are his people. Now what's about, what's about to unfold in these next verses this is when, if you're sitting with someone, they look at you and say, this is a God of love, there are going to be some questions. Listen to what is about to be said. Listen to how harsh this is. And these are the words of God. Verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now declares the Lord, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons. Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Wow. You talk about harsh. Why would he ever look upon a family and say this? I'll tell you why. Because he is preparing a church, a place, and a people for the ultimate priest. He said, the title that my son will have, you've stained it. And the whole reason his son is, this isn't just to protect his son's impression in heaven. This is it. He said, because he is coming to save a people. He's coming to rescue a people. And he's coming for you. He's come, And so when he says, I'm going to do this and this and this to these people, it's because of this reason. You are that important. Have you ever talked to someone who intellectually denies who Jesus is? Well, I really can't because of... And then you get into every other article of debate. From age of the earth the dinosaurs, to whatever, you get everything. 
And you know what I've noticed is there is a never-ending series of questions. I've never talked to anyone that all of a sudden intellectually received that did not receive with their heart. It's not their mind that's keeping them from the Lord. It's their condition of their heart. It's this. Are you ready for this? Grab a hold of this. Biggest nugget of the day, I think. Hope it gets out. I feel like the person deep down inside of their own spiritual condition doesn't feel themselves worthy of the answers you give. I feel like they're sitting there saying, nobody would would stand up for me like that. Nobody would protect me like that. Folks, I guarantee you, if you're ever in an automobile accident, the first thing you're going to listen out for is a siren that's coming your way. If something medically happens to someone, you are going to wait and listen as close as that siren can get and someone walks in a professional when you've lost control over everything. A rescuer has come. In the event your life was in danger, you would pray there would be somebody there who would stand up for you. There is a Lord that has said this, I have prepared and am preparing a way and no one will stand in the way of it because I'm here to protect you. In many different cases from Civil War to World War I, World War II, deserters or people who did not follow the command of the military structure were executed. They were executed by a team of riflemen who didn't want to do it necessarily, by a court who necessarily didn't want to send a seven, in some cases, cases in World War One and Civil War, 17-year-olds. They were done so to protect the integrity of the army that they were serving under. They were done so to protect the importance of the king that they served or the president that they elected. It was to keep the whole order in place. Folks, you are the whole order of God's eye. For those of you who never thought you could even compare yourself to anything great, he says, you are greater than the judges I appointed, the priests. You are greater than the kings and queens that ever ruled this earth. For I will do anything within my power to protect you because you're worthy, because I love you that much. Verse 35. And I will raise up from myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. He has done this for you. He has done this because you are the apple of his eye. And so intellectually, when you deal with someone and they sit there and say, no, I can't believe because of this. I can't believe because I don't understand the correlation between these verses. I can't understand it. Just to say stop and dig into the insecurities and the hardness of a heart that doesn't feel themselves worthy. This is not an Old Testament lesson. It doesn't end here. This isn't like we read a history story that I want to somehow give you some kind of a modern day application to. I'm going to show you and pinpoint to you how you and I have a new priest. In letters to Jewish believers in Hebrews, it says this in in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 28. Look at this. 
The former priests were many in number. This is New Testament. This is on our side, of, uh, again, of the cross. Because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he, is always, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those of the high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and for those of the other people, since he did not once for all when he, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later in the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Have you ever served under a minister? Some of you who grew up in legalistic churches. Some of you shared you grew up in a legalistic church that you were, I mean, ladies, if you didn't walk in with a prairie skirt on or you didn't uphold to this law or this leather law and you got chewed up, spit out, church discipline by a pastor who said, this is the way it is. And then what happens 20 years later, they fall. And you look at them and you think, you fell, and yet you espouse this and this and this. And it's no wonder people are having a hard time getting to the Word of God because there's so many interruptions. Because there's so many man-made rules, so many man-made laws, so many man-made traditions that put into effect and keep people from knowing who the Lord is. I did a Bible study at St. Leo Catholic Church, St. Leo University. It's a Catholic university. Go up there and do a Bible study. It was a Thursday night, walking at 9 p.m. into an auditorium and open it up. We didn't have a guitar to lead anybody. We just opened up a Bible study. We would get anywhere from, some nights we'd have over 70 or 80 students show up. By the time to get done eating pizza or whatever, it's about 9.30, 9.45 when you start talking, leave there about 10.30, and they would just gravitate and listen. But inevitably, there was a monastery there. Have you ever been to St. Leo? You've seen that university? There's a monastery there, and some monks would come down there. It was, you know, some monks would come down and priests, and the monks actually look like a Jedi knight, you know what I mean? They first walk in, you've got the outfit on with the rope, rope, and we would gain some friendship talking to them. And, and so, I mean, I would speak the way I speak, wouldn't hold back. And if I walked through a passage that they would disagree with, I would say, just as a courtesy, well, you know, my brothers over here would say this. Oh, by the way, I, I think before we throw out, oh, this is what the Catholics think, the tradition of this and this and that, understand something. Let me be very, very clear. We just had a pro-life weekend and just come up. If it wasn't for the Catholic Church standing up for pro-life, we would have a joke of a pro-life movement. I'm going to tell you that right now. They have been the standard bearers of that that make us blush. But theologically, there are some things that we disagree on. And I would get to a verse where it would speak very clearly in the New Testament, there is but one mediator between man and God, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. Well, I would break out the real kind of translation of it and that mediator would be the word priest and i would say there's one priest between man and god and that would be his son jesus christ what does that mean to you when people come to you for confession why would you how do you explain that verse and here's what they would say sola tradition tradition only this is what we believe this is how we fall on and folks as much as we look at that and scratch our heads and think how could you put tradition in front of scripture you all know as well we have traditions that we implement all the time. There are traditions that get in the way of how we would worship the Lord. You know what those traditions are? 
I know you're looking to think, what are some of the Creekside traditions? How do we serve the Lord's table? What do we do? What do we do? Ready? It's individual traditions. It's a tradition of doing what you know best. There's two frames of thought. You walk in here with a gift, and I want to say to you, God gave you something to do. He gave you an ability to do something. Do it, and you'll be joyful and do it. You'll have a good time doing it. But there's also another stretch of thought is this. When you walk into here, there just may be something for you, not just here at Creekside. I'm not, this is not like, I'm not, it's not a Creekside message. It's a you and the Lord message. There may be something for you to do to the Lord. Whether it's serving people that can't serve themselves or doing whatever, that the Lord has called you to do that is outside your boundary of comfort and knowledge. Outside your tradition, what would that be? What would that be of something that God has called you to do to say, I'm just not going to use my giftings. I'm going to use my dependency on God. I had a student back in the college ministry that ran an evangelism team of 15, sometimes 20 people on a run. Go out and just witness to people. And I said to the student one time, man, I wish I had that kind of, you know, he just had the ability just to go up to anybody and just start talking. He said, no. He said, I'm, I'm a wreck. I hate doing this. You just taught me one time in a me- message. You said, do what may is uncom- be uncomfortable, that you think God would do something through me. And I said, what makes me uncomfortable? But sharing God and sharing the love of Jesus. So here I am. Yeah, what? You're not supposed to actually do what I preach. You know, I'm thinking, <laughs> like, you really? And he said, yeah, this is what I'm doing. I want to encourage you to look within your heart and ask yourselves, what am I doing that the Lord has gifted me for and gifted me with? to do, and that's powerful. What are you not doing? What have you not done and stepped out in faith based on a dependency of what God can do? Ask anyone in their older years and tell finer moments of their life. It was a moment they were dependent. It is. It wasn't a moment that you looked at your, you looked at your business and said, all is well. It removed the moments of being shared with family and, and those you love. See, what was the moment individually? It was a moment I was dependent and I shocked myself. Watch those traditions that hold you back. You see, you and I are living offerings to God. And before we walk up and say, no, ask yourself why. These last few verses go to 1 John. And I love these verses. It reads here, verse 2 in 1 John. My little children. That's us. That's <laughs> not that neat. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. By the way, you don't have to burn any more lamb or goat or cow. You don't have to burn these things anymore. You have an advocate. And two more verses, here it is. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shrinking. What is that darkness? That darkness is that dark sin, that dark place, that wicked 
place of the mind that tempts you, the place in your heart that holds you down, that keeps you depressed, that keeps you anxious, that keeps you continually falling. It's that dark place that God has said, I have broken through that darkness and I have given you into light. I have broken through the dominion of darkness to give you a priest that you can approach that who, by the way, approaches you. That out of the darkness and out of the hurt and out of the pain, you don't have to look any further. You don't have to make any sacrifices. That he has broke through to find you, to come for you, and to say, I am only the priest you will ever need. I am the one who will walk through. I am the one who will break through. I am the one who will come through. In every monarchy, it's failed. In the priesthood, it's failed. In the ju- era of the judges, it just it, there's failure and, and a breakdown in the priest that we have and who we have. God has used the failures of men to give us a role and a model and a person in Jesus Christ. Who's the mediator between you and your sin? He's your priest. He knows you by your name. He is the one who waits to redeem you from yourself. Because he's rescued you from the payment of sin. And he says, I as your priest have come for you. I am a priest who, by the way, executed that judgment. Why? To show you how much I will painfully penalize a family of people who ever took advantage of what you will ever have. Why did God do this and do this and smite this and put this under? It's because you were worth it. Because he knew the greatest darkness that you will ever face is your sense of worth to yourself and the sense of worth that you have that a God loves you that much. That is the priest that we have in Jesus. That is the forgiver. That is the advocate. That is the rescuer. That is the redeemer that we have in him. And if you're not a believer, why would you leave that out? Why would you ever want to look at Jesus as saying he was a great moral code or teacher or encourager? Because you've missed it. He wants to be your high priest. He wants to be the one that says, I gave myself on a cross so that you would have all the forgiveness and sacrifice you would ever need. And I'm there for you. And those of you who are believers, ask yourself this question. What is the tradition in your life that you have put before the Lord? Blindly. Unintentionally. And never realize the potential that you have. I saw at a wedding um, one time the minister is a high church wedding, but he said something very powerful. And as a a couple were about to walk out, he said, may you find every blessing the Lord has intended for you. God is sovereign. He is. But how many blessings have you and I missed out on? Because we were selfish. Because we had tradition. Because we had our rights. Our sacrifice. How many blessings have we not found? 
This isn't a place to look back and feel guilt. It's a place to look within and see hope. God still writes a story. He doesn't stop writing it. No matter how much you feel as if you've failed to find that sacrifice, he'll let you see it. He'll let you live. Let you breathe in a spiritual way you never thought possible. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word. And Lord, I thank you for